0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 5th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards, coming up on today's programme... The Catholic Church conducts a historic funeral for Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. We check in live at the Vatican City, where the service is underway. Colombia's government backtracks on an announcement that it had reached a ceasefire with one of the country's largest remaining armed groups. We hear from our correspondent in Bogota then why Amazon plans to cut more than 18,000 jobs worldwide. And Monocle's Laura Kramer is here to bring us the latest from the world of culture. Laura, what do you have for us?
1: Well, move over Elgin Marbles. There's a new marble row in town. I'll tell you all about the robots that could take over marble sculpting.
0: All that and more ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. For the first time in hundreds of years, the Vatican is holding a funeral service for a former pope presided over by the present incumbent. The service began this morning after three days in which the late Pope Benedict XVI's body, dressed in robes and clutching rosaries, has been on display, allowing tens of thousands of mourners to file past. Benedict will be buried in a crypt beneath St. Peter's Basilica that holds the tombs of more than 90 of his predecessors. He died, of course, at the weekend, aged 95 after... Many years of illness. Well, for more on this, joining us now from Vatican City is Francis Rocca, Vatican correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. Francis, good afternoon to you. Thanks for being with us. Um, describe the describe the scene and, and the sort of the the atmosphere there. We heard a little uh, sort of snippet of some of the uh, somber music that had been playing. Uh, what's happening there?
2: Well, uh, it was, the square was uh, pretty much full, as you saw, and uh, it was a grey uh, kind of chilly day. The weather over the previous days was very mild, but today it was appropriately funereal. Uh, the, uh, it was, it was, it was a, you know, not, not, nothing like the Pope John Paul's funeral in 2005, which was uh, just massive. You had, you know, some two million people arriving, all sorts of heads of state and government. This was more low-key, but it was still pretty grand and, and, uh, and solemn.
0: Yeah. And in front, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about this question already of, of legacy, if it's not indelicate to do it on this day itself, of course. It's interesting what a sort of standard bearer for the more conservative wing, of course, of the church that, uh, that, that Benedict was. And obviously that does set him at odds with Francis, who's more of a sort of reformist character. Do you, is there a sense, almost palpable sense where you are of a church that's still kind of pulled in different directions, maybe down a bit to the, the differing characters of these two men?
2: Oh, very much so, and I think today won't won't change that. It will only make it more so. Perhaps I think a lot of people were expecting to were waiting to hear what Francis would say. Would he would he pay tribute to his predecessor in a very strong way? Would he try to re- interpret his predecessor in a way that was more you know in harmony with his own approach? He didn't do anything. He hardly mentioned him. He he, he, he was he gave a very generic homily that, you know, one could read into and sort of make connections with, but he hardly mentioned Benedict. And I think that will disappoint a lot of people, because Benedict himself, just when he was still a cardinal, gave the eulogy for John Paul II in 2005, and it was totally different. It was a biography, basically, of John Paul II as a kind of model for a Christian, and it was very, very emotional and very passionate. And this, this was nothing like that.
0: Well, yeah, and, and I, I, it's interesting, isn't it, that one of the criticisms, I suppose, of, of Benedict, uh, you know, while he was in the role and indeed in the years since he, he he moved aside, was this idea that, you know, he would put protecting the church ahead of anything else. You know, he sought to do that at, at all costs. Do you think that there is still uh, a pressing need for the church more broadly to sort of address that idea and some of the kind of um, contradictions implicit in that?
2: Of the contradictions in defending the church particularly on what, sorry? Well, just, just at all costs,
0: obviously, in particular, in his case, it was to do often with uh, suggestions of uh, sexual abuse by members of the, of the clergy. But there was always this suggestion, wasn't there, that Benedict was a protector of the church as an institution beyond anything else. Do you think there's still much work to be done uh, for the church more broadly now?
2: Well, there's an irony in that, in that by any, anybody who's studied it will agree that no one did more than Benedict... Uh, when he was a cardinal in the Vatican, and then even as Pope, but certainly in the years before, to, to, to raise awareness of sex abuse and to combat it. Now, victims' advocates say he didn't do enough, but he certainly was very, very ardently dedicated to that. So I think at least certainly by the time he had that job, his view of protecting the church would, would, would involved exposing that very problem. He hasn't gotten full credit, I think, for that, for that record. Um, but, uh, so, so, yeah, I would say, I'd say that's an important part of his biography that needs to be understood better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Francis, good to hear from you. Thanks for, uh, letting us know what's happening over there. That was Francis Roca, of Vatican City, for us today. Right now, let's cross and hear from Emma Sel. She's standing by with the day's other
3: news headlines. Thanks, Tom. The deeply divided U.S. House of Representatives was engulfed in crisis for a second day running as fresh rounds of voting failed to produce a winner in the race for speaker. Conservative hardliners have been blocking establishment pick Kevin McCarthy in a string of ballots that has paralysed the lower chamber of Congress. Australia has confirmed it is purchasing two advanced missile and rocket systems worth over $1 Australian billion, including one used by the Ukrainian military. Australia's Defence Ministry plans to also acquire a weapon-locating radar system from the Australian company CEA. And Afghanistan's Taliban-led administration is planning to sign a contract with a Chinese company to extract oil from the Amu Darya Basin in the country's north. It will be the first major public commodities extraction deal the Taliban has signed with a foreign company since taking power in 2021. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Emma. More news headlines coming away at the top of the next hour. Now, the Colombian government has backtracked on an announcement that it had reached a ceasefire with one of the country's largest remaining armed groups, a day after National Liberation Army rebels said they were not going to be part of any such deal. The ceasefire was supposed to usher in a peaceful beginning to the new year and kickstart President Gustavo Petro's ambitious promise to bring total peace to the country after more than six decades of conflict and a number of false dawns. Well, in Bogota for us now is Monocle's Anastasia Maloney. Um, good morning to you, Anastasia. Good to speak with you as always. Look, only what, four or five days after the initial announcement, um, this is clearly a setback. But what kind of setback is this for President Petro?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it is clearly a setback, and it was a mistake by the government to announce on New Year's Eve that they had, in fact, reached a uh, Uh, multilateral ceasefire with the ELN, the rebel group you just mentioned. And then the ELN said, well, actually, that's not correct. We deny reaching any agreement. Um, We haven't agreed to a ceasefire. Um, So in that sense, it's a public relations uh, disaster. It's certainly a mistake. Uh, It's a minor setback. Um, If you look at it over the long term, because people were very surprised that the initial announcement was made, um, people aren't expecting that just after a few months of peace talks that the ELN and the government is going to reach such an important agreement. Um, the agreement was to have a ceasefire that would last for at least six months and then could be uh, prolonged. Um, people were surprised by this. So it is a setback, but it's the damage is limiting because both sides have said that the second round of peace talks will in fact still go ahead Um, They are set for the 20th of January in Mexico. And the ELN then later said, yes, we will be willing to discuss any proposed uh, ceasefire agreement um, in the second round of peace talks. So the peace talks are still on. Um, I would say it's a minor setback and uh, it certainly doesn't look good as far as the uh, government is concerned about their image and the announcements that they're making. Um, So Gustavo Petro will have to obviously be more cautious about the types of announcements he's going to make during these peace talks, which will take months, if not years.
0: Well, yes, and we'll look to the future and and talk a bit more about those peace talks in Mexico the next round in a moment. But just on Petro, it is interesting. I think when we spoke just before uh, Christmas, Anastasia, it was interesting. We talked about petro's perhaps uniquely well qualified uh, uh, role in, in getting this done given you know his own rebel past there's a, an opportunity if perhaps not an unprecedented opportunity he he certainly has a, a, a an important combination of of qualities do you think that that holds true despite this gaffe maybe a misjudgment here as you say it's only a a, a, a sort of a, a hiccup it's not it doesn't sort of hold him beneath the waterline.
4: Yeah, I think ultimately um, the fact that Gustavo Petro is Colombia's first leftist president, as you said, he was himself in his youth a member of another rebel group called the M-19. Um, the chief uh, negotiator for the government is also a former M-19 rebel member. So um, he is well placed. His, his negotiating team certainly understands Um, the rebels. They understand the struggle. They understand their aims. They can talk the the same language. There is an affinity and a certain amount of empathy between the two sides. So if anyone is going to make this deal, uh, it's certainly going to be during um, this government. He still is in a good position to uh, sit at the negotiating table with the ELN, considering his past and who's doing the negotiating. But it's still going to be really, really challenging. But of all the The people that have tried in the governments, I mean, this is probably the seventh time that the government has tried to um, get a peace deal with the ELN over the years. Uh, Probably Gustavo Petro is uh, more likely than most to get this done.
0: Uh, well, let's look forward then and, and talk a little bit about those talks I, I, in Mexico. I guess maybe on the agenda will be a, a little bit of yeah, PR management and, and media messaging. Um, but, but what else is on the agenda? And I wonder, Anastasia, and we touched upon this before as well, is there any role for further stakeholders? We've talked about some different you know, institutions and international influences which are helping this process forwards. Uh, do you think there'll be any discussions about other stakeholders that maybe also need to get involved to give this the best chance of working in the long term?
4: Yes, definitely. So uh, on the second round, uh, one of the points they're going to discuss is what is the role of a civil society? What is the role of um, other important human rights leaders, community leaders in Colombia? Um, they are hoping to be part of these negotiations, um, particularly people that have been affected by the conflict and the fighting. Um, so the role that civil society can play in these negotiations is going to be discussed Also, um, what the government is doing to combat poverty, combat corruption. The ELN has asked that those two issues are also put on the table. And I think the biggest one will be, um, again, looking at this possibility of a temporary uh, multilateral ceasefire. That's got to be on the table. And in fact, the ELN said, yes, it will be willing to talk about that when the talks uh, begin again in Mexico.
0: Anastasia, I did want to ask you one other thing, just on how this sort of filters down to, you know, the man and woman on the street, obviously looking from without, we're sort of obsessed over the the details. And I frequently ask you these questions about the direction of travel in terms of the process. But is this still... You know, Does this dominate the, the, the general public discourse? Is it, is it on people's minds? Is it, is it a topic of discussion around the sort of breakfast table as people read their newspapers every, every day? Or is this one of the things where there's maybe a little bit of a, a, a separation between the day-to-day, the quotidian detail of what people are preoccupied with and what we, you know, thousands of miles away make from without?
4: Yeah, I would say that this certainly isn't not a topic um, around the breakfast table. Um, it's not a priority for most Colombians. <clears throat> they are not interested in the details of the ELN uh, peace deal. And for most Colombians, uh, particularly those living in the cities and not living in rural areas, this really isn't a priority. It's not an issue. Uh, Most Colombians are worried about the economy. They're worried about high inflation. They're worried about, you know, whether they're going to have a job and basically the price of food. Um, Most Colombians will not be thinking about the ELN. However, those Colombians that live in areas where the ELN is active, particularly on the Pacific coast and Western Colombia in border areas, uh, for them, it's very, very real. The conflict is real. They are often caught in the crossfire. Um, They're displaced from their communities. So for uh, a minority group of Colombians in rural areas, yes, it is a constant issue. But for most Colombians, the ELN peace talks are still um, abstract and it's certainly not a priority.
0: Uh, Anastasia, always great to uh, talk with you. Thanks for joining us uh, today to bring us up to speed and happy new year to you. In the meantime, you're listening to the briefing here on Monocle 24.
2: The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs program. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually though you speak to ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres
5: I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at
2: them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24.
0: are back with the briefing. We had yet more news of further swinging cuts at Amazon across its global operations. For more on this, we're joined now by the business and finance journalist Louise Cooper. Good afternoon, Louise. Always good to hear from you. Um, What have we learned about the latest round of cuts uh, for Amazon?
5: Yeah, 18,000 jobs are going to go. It's only about 1% of staff. About 10,000 cuts had been expected. Um, And actually, the share price went up a couple of percent on the back of this, um, as expectation had been building that Amazon were going to cut a lot of staff just for context right we need to think about context one it's only one percent of their workforce more importantly the workforce is about one and a half million that was in the third quarter of this year but if you go back to 2015 which really wasn't that long ago the workforce at Amazon globally was only 200,000 so the workforce has grown from 200,000 only, what, seven, eight years ago to one and a half million by you know the end of last year. I mean, phenomenal growth in the number of people working for Amazon. One could well say that 18,000 is really quite a small job cut, although obviously for those affected, it's going to be extremely painful.
0: Indeed, Louise, I guess what you know people say a week's a long time in politics. I guess eight years is still quite a long time in the world of of unicorns. Just tell us then a little bit about the direction of travel here for for Amazon and indeed for some other tech majors you know as we head on into 23 because a bit of a narrative at the end of last year and obviously with this news as well continuing is that there are these contractions this tightening even if it is only a drop in the ocean. What's your read Louise on um, what we might expect to see in the, in the in the weeks and months ahead?
5: Well the thing that really kicked it all off was when Meta or Facebook announced those 11,000 job cuts uh, in autumn of last year. First job cuts ever at Facebook and a massive 13% of staff and since then we We've really had just job cuts everywhere. Twitter, unsurprisingly, with Musk in charge, 3,700 jobs. A hard drive company called Seagate, 3,000 jo- jobs. Even Apple, I've paused all hiring outside of R&D. Peloton, 12% of work, uh, workforce. Hewlett-Packard, the PC maker, 6,000 jobs. Intel, who make computer chips, um, billions of dollars of cost cutting. We haven't got actual figure yet on the amount of people going. Um, so, you know... Tech tech stocks did appallingly badly last year. Tesla share price down sort of 70, over 70%. It It was not alone in doing really badly. The job cuts have come to an industry that thought it was going to grow
0: forever. Um, And perhaps unsurprisingly, that has not come to pass. Uh, Louise, thanks uh, for your insights. Listening to all of this alongside me here in Studio One of Midori House is Monocle's business editor, David Hodari. Good afternoon to you, David. Happy New Year, I should say.
6: Hello, Tom. Happy New Year to you too. When do we
0: stop saying that? Well, possibly today. (laughs) This may be the last of it. Um, David, give me your your take on this. What's your read? I'm intrigued to get your sense of any of the kind of sector-wide trends, again, that Louise was mentioning there.
6: Yeah, sure. Louise is absolutely right. There's about 1% of Amazon's overall stuff being being uh, let go. But I, I slightly disagree that that's a small number. I mean, that's 18,000 people. That's uh, Most of those cuts are coming from the corporate ranks of Amazon. That's about 5% of those corporate ranks. And uh, that's not an insignificant number of people. When you look at the, the number of people that Meta has cut, for example, that's 11,000 workers. Uh, it just so happens that Amazon happens to hire a load more people than that. And um, Ultimately, what has gone on here is a lot of these tech companies, their profits surged earlier in the pandemic, Amazon in particular, because uh, the company was benefiting from everyone being stuck indoors, a huge boost to uh, uh, e-commerce. And now, as the as the pandemic is sort of in the rearview mirror, even for places in, in the Far East... Um, bricks and mortar is coming back, people returning to the high street. And it's just the simple fact of the matter is, number one, they hired too many people as uh, as uh, Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff said the other day, he said, uh, we hired too many people earlier in the pandemic, I take responsibility for that. Um, and uh, and it's a simple uh, correction of, of the number of people these, these tech companies have hired. And on top of that, uh, in economically straightened times, these companies tend to do not quite as well as the, as the um, companies providing the things that everyone needs, like steel or oil, for example.
0: Well, yeah. And I was going to ask you a little bit about this as a broad picture. Obviously, we've got still very high inflation soaring. Maybe it's plateaued or tapered. It may even be dropping maybe in Eurozone or in the US. But that has encouraged businesses, consumers to cut back spending broadly. And I guess, once again, Amazon are going to feel the brunt of some of that.
6: Absolutely, um, Amazon naturally will feel feel the brunt of that. You have, uh, in market terms, you tend to have what's called growth stocks and value stocks. In, in uh, times of high inflation, value stocks like the things that we, we can't live without, food, for example, uh, tend to do well. Whereas in periods of economic, you know, boom times, it's
0: it's growth stocks like tech stocks that do well. Um- David, are you excited about 2023, generally speaking? Straight in times you've mentioned, but there's lots of exciting things. You're going to be presumably hitting the road and reporting from exciting places. Lots of What have you got your eye on? Just to give wet our appetites with a couple of thoughts for the next 12 months.
6: Well, I don't want to lift my trousers like, too much for you here, Tom. <laughs> but there are plenty of exciting things coming in Monaco's business section uh, later this year. Um, there'll be plenty of places that we look at. We're looking at... Uh, places in APAC, in New Zealand, for example. We're looking at stories in Los Angeles. We're looking at potentially the wine industry. We're looking at potentially the deep sea data cable industry. But, you know,
0: that that would be, uh, uh, to go deeper would be to give away the farm, so to speak. Go deeper. I get what what you've done. Very clever. Uh, David, always good to hear from you. Thanks for uh, jumping into the studio today. That was Monocle's business editor, David Hadari. Before that, we heard from Louise Cooper. My thanks to them. Both you're with The Briefing.
7: Monocle's December-January double issue includes our annual soft power survey that ranks the nations that have committed to winning friends with good diplomacy, cultural hits and even national cuisine. And there are some big surprises in our top 20. Beyond the survey, we look at which Icelandic brands are going international, meet the artists in Baghdad who want their nation to be defined by more than turmoil and return to Kyiv to speak with Ukraine's foreign minister. This is a war for identity. This is the war between Russia as a state and the people of Ukraine. I think it's impossible to win a war against the people. And we've packed plenty of fun in too, with our roundups of the best bookstores, a look at the revival of the stationery shop And our list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's December January issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
0: Finally, on today's programme, it's time for a quick culture roundup. Joining me here in the studio is Monocle's own Laura Kramer. Laura, good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon, Tom.
0: Um, David Dory was upset because I wished him a Happy New Year. He said, for how long do we continue to do that? Would you be upset if I were to say Happy New Year to you?
1: Happy New Year.
0: It's fine, isn't it? It's
1: fine because I think the rest of the week is acceptable.
0: Okay. So after
1: next week, it's weird.
0: Okay, so wrap it up by the sixth.
1: <laughs> Basically.
0: Okay, so no more, no more good New Year's <laughs> wishes from the from the ninth onwards. duly noted. Um, what have you got for us? Lots uh, going on. You've got some intriguing uh, stories. Shall we start <laughs> with a bit of Sony Pictures Television and what they've been up to?
1: Yes. Yeah, so they have just, well, it says quietly taken over control of the um, production house, Left Bank Pictures, and they are the ones that are behind series like The Crown, very famously also behind her eyes, Outlander. It's a really big UK production company that's been around about 15 years. And yes, Sony... Pictures Television has now basically taken full control. The deal is worth about six million dollars, and that means that this production company is now about worth 125 million in just 15 years. So not too shabby. I think what'll be really interesting, especially talking about The Crown, is there is one slight story that has just been kind of bumping around. Nobody has really picked I've seen up it on in it. Today's newspaper. Nobody has really UK. picked up on it, and that is <laughs> Prince Harry's book is coming out next week, literally in a week, and. Of course, there have been some allegations that that have been printed in The Guardian about what's in the book, including an altercation between Harry and William that was physical. So it'll be interesting to see if The Crown kind of delves into that further down the line or what will happen with Sony taking control of this picture company. Well,
0: I guess it's possibly one of those things where it's serendipitous timing uh, and news headlines for all parties involved in all of these, because I guess more people want to watch The Crown, more people want to watch the... uh, heavily trailed interview here in the UK uh, from Harry. Personally, I'm willing to... (laughs) cast my eyes the other direction, Laura. But uh, as you said, it's it's definitely uh, winning the column inches battle. Um, let's change tack, though, a little bit uh, and to look internationally. I'm always super interested in big art market trends. Um, lots to think about and talk about in that respect, particularly if we cast our eyes a little east from here. If we look at what's happening uh, in Southeast Asia and East Asia, really, really interesting. And I know you've got a couple of observations.
1: Yes, yeah, so Singapore is gaining a lot of traction in the global art market because there are three international art gal- galleries that are going Going to be having establishing a presence there this month, so they are from New York, Hong Kong, and Tokyo obviously, very big markets there. And also, Art Basel is heavily um, in, involved in two upcoming sort of art festivals in Singapore, so it's really seeming like it's going to be taking off. And there are many reasons for this there's an influx of people, then they're all from the world of finance and arts and culture, but also, Singapore is starting to be really attractive for them for the low tax issues there so (laughs) i think it's definitely one to watch and it should be really exciting to see kind of what they put on and like i said there are going to be two editions coming out in january uh one uh running right now from the 5th to the 15th and then one from the 11th and that's uh, involved with art basel's parent company so definitely look out for what's going to be happening in the art world in singapore uh
0: we'll be covering uh the fairs there. really interesting i guess there's a sort of you know post-Hong Kong opportunity for Mm. for expansion in this sort of part of the world as well, which is one we'll be uh, tracking. Uh, Now, I know on our Globus programme earlier today, Laura, we talked a little bit about uh, the Elgin Marbles, obviously the papers here in the UK, well, a perennial obsession of, uh, of theirs, this this ongoing <laughs> row. Um, but there does seem to be some 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 movement. And George Osborne, erstwhile chancellor, is involved in potentially trying to negotiate some sort of cultural exchange. Um, th- there's a, there's an amusing aside about this. But just on that that one briefly, that I mean, that is interesting. We don't know how much closer to any resolution we are. But certainly, if there's going to be thematics that we keep going back to in 23, this idea of restitution, returning artifacts to their uh, original countries from which they were borrowed slash plundered that's obviously not going to go away is it that 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 narrative it seems a I mean, uh, guarantee that's going to be headlines all year all year long
1: tying it in too with the pope's stories today the pope himself has come out and said that they should return the marble so I, I think when there we go against the a,
0: higher power
1: when a figure like that gets involved i think it's basically
0: the game the game the game could be up yeah when, it, when you have the supreme pontiff weighing in um but what what intrigues me we were chatting about this story ellen you said no 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 and you alluded to this at the top of the show if we're talking about Marble? Hmm. There's a, we should be looking at a whole other story, Laura. Tell me more.
1: Yes, well, the famous Carrera marble that was used in in very many famous works. There's now a robot that can sculpt it. And it's one L is the name of the of the robot. And basically, what used to take, you know, hundreds of hours and many sculptors, besides obviously the artists themselves, could now be done in four days. This thing could do uh, a sculpture of the Venus in four days. It's incredible. And it's 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 about like 13 feet. It's zinc alloy. It's very fascinating looking. It's super robotic looking. And it's actually based in the Carrero Mountains where uh, Michelangelo got uh, his his marble from they sourced all this marble from so yeah and actually it, this technology that has been used even by artists such as jeffrey coons and it's becoming very popular at the same time there's also something to be said about the craftsmanship of this work and the artists who who do this in italy and everywhere else they're kind of worried are robots taking over my job uh it, it's a very fair question um I, what they're saying, the, the 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 people behind the robot are saying, well, the robot doesn't take vacations, it doesn't take holiday, it doesn't it doesn't complain about.
0: Not really it doesn't a level unionize, field. I suppose. And is he called One L? So we can say he's One L of a robot.
1: One L of a robot, yeah.
0: Um, but, well, what's interesting about this, I guess, if we look back to your Michelangelo's et cetera, you know, they obviously had their crews of operatives and workshops who would do a lot of the work. This is still the case with many most artists today. And it's funny that there are some, like Jeff Koons, who are very transparent about it, yes. but others where they're much more guarded about the supposed mystery. Uh, but again, this seems to be the direction of travel. Here's a question for you, Laura, finally. Would you have a sculpture fashioned by 1L in your home, or would you find that... I'd find that a bit creepy, but would you go for it if someone was offering? Of, of just anything? Well, you know, a, beautiful, a, a miniature Venus de Milo, for example.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, you,
0: <laughs> no, no bones in. about it. There we go. Uh, well, if the Carrera marble marketeers are listening, um, get in touch with Laura. Uh, Laura Kramer, always good to chat with you. Thanks for uh, picking out some of the stories on your cultural watch list today. Uh, here on the briefing and that is all we have time for on this edition the show was expertly produced by tom webb our studio manager was callum McLean. my thanks to them as always we'll be back at the same time tomorrow That's noon in London, 1300 if you're listening on CET. But if you can't wait that long, don't fret. Do tune in for the Monocle Daily. That's coming up in about five and one half hours here. 1800 London time uh, this evening for more opinion on all the day's big stories. And then you can tune in to The Globalist. uh, 7am London time every weekday. Find out more at monocle.com. That's where you can also subscribe to the magazine if you are so minded. Go and do it right now. From me, Tom Edwards, and the briefing crew. That's all. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.